Hello, everyone. My name is John Gallagher, a senior editor at FreightWaves, and welcome to this session of FreightWaves Cold Chain Summit, where we will be talking about regulations and policy affecting carriers and shippers involved in the refrigerated supply chain. And who better to speak to this than our panel guest, Lowell Randall, who is Senior Vice President of Government and Legal Affairs for the, the Global Cold Chain Alliance. The alliance serves as the voice of the cold chain industry, representing 1,300 member companies in over 85 countries. Lowell, thanks for taking the time to join us today. John, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, certainly no shortage of issues impacting the cold chain and uh, policy these days, so happy to go through some of those with you today. Great, great. Well, then um, let's jump in here. So well, I wanted to start Low with a federal rule that actually went in place a couple of years ago, and this is but this is affecting the industry now, and which is the FDA Food Safety Modernization Act rule on sanitary transportation and human animal food. Kind of a long, long phrase there, but the the rule places requirements on rail and truck carriers to ensure food remains sanitary while it's being transported. Since this rule went into effect, your association, I understand, has put in place some best practices that are directed at carriers. Could you, could you tell us some of the main points of your best practices and how they currently apply to carriers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as, you, as you mentioned, this rule's been in effect for a little while now, but uh, the, the enforcement of it has taken some time to, to move forward. So I think it's still very timely to be talking about sanitary transportation of food rule and best practices. Uh, and the way that FDA structured the rule, it really placed a premium on industry best practices and gave the industry a lot of flexibility. And one of the things that we found was there wasn't really a standard go-to place for best practices on things like sanitation, temperature management, uh, records retention, uh, pre-cooling, different types of practices that you have to deal with when you're looking at carrying perishable commodities. So we got our industry experts together and we crafted a refrigerated transportation best practices guide that really takes you all the way through the steps of the life of a product going through the food supply chain. So certainly a major portion is focused on carriers, but we also talk about the roles and responsibilities of shippers, receivers, and, and loaders even. And I think it's important as we think about um, this rule and really any of these new practices that impact the supply chain, I think it's important for carriers to know what is responsibility of the shipper and the receiver and that there's great communication amongst all parties that are handling that food product as it moves throughout the supply chain. So our best practices walk through how you can do that uh, with an eye towards compliance, but for those who may not be subject to FISMA, maybe transporting in other parts of the world, uh, these are best practices that can be applied anywhere. I'm pleased to say those are free to anyone who wants to download them from the GCCA website. It's not just for members. And then we took it even one step further and created a new certification program 
to show and demonstrate achievement against those best practices. And that's called our Certified Cold Carrier Program. So for those who are interested in uh, the best practices, those are free. You can take, take a look. And if you're interested in taking that next step, you can even look at certification now. Great. So, um, and more more recently, uh, FDA proposed a rule to establish additional traceability and record keeping requirements to food manufacturers, uh, packers, and processors. Now, while I understand this, this this rule doesn't apply specifically to the carriers. Why might this be important for the carriers as well to know about? Yeah, I think it's it's a good point, and. While the the rule, as it's proposed, does specifically exclude transportation, um, it places significant responsibility on shippers and receivers uh, that goes through what type of information needs to stay with product as it moves through all of these what they call critical tracking events. And since the carrier is involved in the uh, origination of a load coming from a shipper and the destination at a receiver, I think it's really important for the carrier community to understand what their partners in the supply chain are going to be asked to do from a regulatory standpoint and to realize that whether it's a regulatory requirement or not, the private sector may uh, ask of carriers some additional things to make sure that that traceability is intact, whether it's something FDA requests or not. It may be something that a shipper or a receiver will work with their carrier partners on to ensure that that traceability is uh, is solid all the way through the supply chain. Great, great. Um, I want to get into um, specific carriers here. And speaking of the trucking industry, industry in particular, um, and I know the trucking industry plays a, a big part for your members, Law. Um, the American Trucking Associations just this, this week put out some economic statistics showing the difficulty that carriers are having um, hiring and uh, hiring and, and retaining drivers in this market. Um, so what challenges are, are your members seeing to with respect to the truck truck availability or truck driver availability? Um, and how do you see any regulatory um, or legislative policy that can address this? Yeah, so this is an ongoing challenge. Uh, it was a problem a few years ago. The pandemic has only exacerbated it. So that is one of the top issues that I hear from members about is labor availability, whether that's drivers, warehouse workers, uh, folks to work in a, in a, a manufacturing plant. It is pervasive across really the whole economy. And so as a result, I think we've got to be creative uh, as an industry, but we also can look to our policymakers for some of that creativity as well. One of the things that you may hear talked about is the Drive Safe Act that would uh, expand the potential driver pool to those individuals 18 to 21 and enable them to drive across state lines. Many states allow 18-year-olds uh, to, uh, to, to get that commercial driver license, but uh, currently federal law would prohibit them from going across state lines. So uh, we think that there, that's not a panacea. That's not gonna solve the whole problem, but it's another tool in the toolbox. 
I think creative recruitment is, is another potential tool in the toolbox. You hear about apprenticeships and uh, working with the Department of Labor. There are some things that are being done currently to try to transition, let's say, veterans coming out of the military active service who have tremendous skills uh, that can apply to the supply chain, whether that's in a driver mode or something else along the, the food supply chain. So I, I'm very much uh, optimistic that we can find these kind of creative tools. Some of them are government driven. Some of them are private sector driven uh, to, to meet that burgeoning need. And I would just also say uh, the pandemic and some of the unemployment benefits that were added to uh, the, the mix over the pandemic, I think really made some additional challenges of, of getting people back into the workplace. That may not have has had as much an impact on the driver community, but I know in the warehousing community, uh, that was something that I heard a lot about. So as we're coming out of the pandemic, I'm hopeful that some of those stressors will be taken away and uh, that things are going to start to loosen up in the labor market. But but we know even historically that's going to continue to be an issue we have to pay close attention to. Okay. And um, and now moving a little bit more to um, maybe the, the uh, maritime and rail side, um, I understand GCCA members, uh, along with many U.S. exporters, have seen their um, operational costs rise as a result of the, the huge in increase in demand for imports. Um, that led to demurrage and um, detention of containers, service disruptions at the ports, um, and, and also just uh, you know uh, big price increases from the ocean carriers. How how would you like to see this issue dealt with um, from a regulatory perspective? It's such a big challenge, and some of the problem is going to be very difficult to resolve in, in a regulatory context. But, uh, it, for example, we need to have more containers available. And as I talk to people in the container manufacturing sector, uh, the orders are basically full for the rest of the year. So uh, there's some things that you just the private sector has to keep catch up with demand. but as we look at what the public sector can do, you think about, the, you mentioned demurrage and detention. I think that's one area where our members in particular have uh, been disadvantaged by inappropriate application of demurrage and detention when container availability, backups at the ports, uh, delays, and in some cases you maybe have an order for let's say 10 containers that are supposed to come on Monday they don't come at all on Monday, but then you get 50 on Wednesday and you can't process 50. And there's a lot of uh, inconsistency in how that's moving forward. Uh, but then you're still on the hook for demurrage and detention. So um, I would uh, I would say working with federal regulatory bodies to uh, mitigate some of the inappropriate application of detention and demerge. We've been working with the Surface Transportation Board over the last few years on this on the rail side, and they've recently issued a uh, final rule that um, I think adds some balance to the demerge policy realm, and we're hopeful that that will, uh, that will even the playing field a little bit more when it comes to the rail side. We're hoping that the, that the Federal Maritime Commission can become even a little more active than they have been on the port side and the marine uh, side 
to uh, maybe mitigate some of the damages that we're seeing from a detention and demerge standpoint there. So again, it's uh, there's there's not a silver bullet and some of it is outside the government's control, but we need to all be working together through these challenging times. And that's uh, across all of the parts of the food supply chain and the private sector, but also working with our, our government partners to try to ease these challenges as much as we can. Yeah, and, and you might see some of that. You might see a little bit more proactive um, uh, push from FMC now that um, the Biden administration has weighed in and um, is trying to put a little bit of force uh, justice, force from the Justice Department um, behind that with that competition um, uh, executive order that he, that was issued just recently. Um, the um, So the GCCA, so get, getting into uh, technology a little bit here, um, GCCA has talked about digitization, um, how that's improving the speed with which data is being transferred within the supply chain, um, which thereby gives shippers, um, which uh, carriers and logistics companies a better handle on when and where to surge product, um, which could help reduce things like panic buying, which we saw um, uh, during the pan pandemic, early in the pandemic, um, but which could actually you know, come up again as an issue. Um, what role do you see the federal government playing role in supporting that this this digitization trend? Yeah, so digitization, whether it's blockchain or some of the other technologies that are that are emerging, I think pl can play an important role in the the future of the food supply chain. And we need to work with the federal government to to ensure that that information technology is. Uh, uh, is continuing to be developed so that certainly there is a, a federal role in uh, technology, science, and, and research and development, but then also working with the private sector as those technologies come online. Some regulations uh, may lend themselves to adopting uh, the, uh, the technology. So you hear about the uh, FDA's uh, new era of smarter food safety, and they are really relying a lot on technology and the role that it can play. The traceability rule that we've just talked about, uh, technology can play an important role. Uh, so I, I would say, again, a common theme you'll hear from me is we need to be communicating together. We need to be working together uh, to address these issues and, and utilize technology as a tool. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's only as good as the people who are using and administering it. So we need uh, to have the right kind of framework and policy around that to ensure that the technology is used to to the most efficient way. Right, right. And the 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 digitization trend is also kind of highlighting the vulnerable vulnerability in cybersecurity as well that um, companies have and that um, you know uh, the meat uh, processing company JBS um, is a big example of that. I mean that's right in your 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 ballpark there. They were just recently hit with that ransomware attack. Um, so I, I assume you're not, um, uh, you wouldn't be advocating for uh, more regulations um, for, um, from the federal government on, on cybersecurity, but but on your members, but what, I mean, do you see, uh, again, on the cybersecurity front, what a uh, role for the government there? Yeah, so th there are a couple of different roles. One is uh, working with uh, agencies like the Department of Homeland Security as they are developing resources that can assist uh, industry in beating back cyber attacks and hardening their own systems. 
So I know that DHS has some good resources already available, uh, on, uh, but I, I think more can be done uh, from an education and outreach standpoint that where the technical experts and the cyber experts from agencies like DHS can do more outreach, uh, particularly to critical infrastructure industries like the food sector. Um, then you've got agencies like uh, those within the Department of Agriculture. When you see the JBS uh, hit, they responded quickly and said, we're, we're with the meat and poultry industry and uh, put forward some suggestions and outreach to mitigate the impacts. Uh, so some of it is prevention and some of it is mitigation of impacts. I think there's a role for the government in both of those uh, areas. And it, then we all have our own responsibility as uh, folks in the industry to uh, use the best practices that are available to lessen the, the threat of cyber. And we, we know it's there. Uh, many of our, several of our members over the last 12 months have been hit as well. And the, the food supply is something where, as, as we said, we're getting more and more reliant on technology. And so when you get a major player in the food supply chain that's hit, uh, that has wide ramifications. So we have to stay vigilant. Gotcha. And um, and just uh, briefly before we wrap up, Law, I just want to ask you, you know, uh, the uh, Biden administration and Congress are, are working on a, a couple of infrastructure packages um, and trying to figure out how to pay for it. But I just want to ask you, is there, is there anything in the um, infrastructure bills that you've seen so far that you're particularly, um, you know, keeping close eye on or concerned about? Well, I, I would say, generally speaking, investments in infrastructure are something that we absolutely support. Uh, roads, bridges, ports. So we need that type of investment, uh, investments in things like rural broadband to follow on the technology side of things. So finding ways to make sure that our infrastructure is, is ready for the future, critically important. From a concern standpoint, it's how do we pay for that, and uh, do we are there ways to accomplish this without increasing taxes on an industry that has been working so hard to keep the food supply chain going through the pandemic? And I can attest that our members have been extremely busy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's been a good economic year for them. Labor costs have gone up. Other costs have gone up, material costs, uh, transportation costs, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, they may have been uh, tremendously busy, but that doesn't mean that, they're, uh, that they got great economic benefit out of the pandemic. So by placing additional tax burdens on the food industry right now, coming on the heels of the pandemic, uh, gives me great concern because I just, I know um, I, I know the investments are important in, in infrastructure, but coming on the shoulders of an industry that has been uh, pouring its heart and soul into keeping the food supply chain going over the last 18 months uh, doesn't seem to be the right balance. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there, Lowell. Um, thank you again for joining us today and for your very valued regulatory perspective on the cold chain supply chains. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you everyone for tuning in.